Today on Something You Should Know, how to project that perfect image of confidence. Then there's more to kindness than you ever knew. I mean, how many people think of themselves as kind? Probably 10 out of 10 people would say they're kind, but I think they're actually saying they're nice. You know, people are nice to the people because it's a reaction. Nice to you if I like you. I'll be nice to you if I agree with you. Kindness is different. It's not reactive. It's proactive. Also, why you should really avoid making left-hand turns as much as possible. And understanding how science really works and why a lot of people today don't trust science for two main reasons. First is, science has been wrong in the past, so why should we trust it in the future? But then the second thing is that science, I think, is mistrusted by people as an establishment. And so depending upon what group of people you talk to, trust in science or lack thereof varies widely. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. You know, it's so much fun to do this podcast because I get to talk to so many interesting people about so many interesting topics. And, you know, people ask me often, like, what's your favorite episode or what's your favorite interview that you've ever done? And it's really hard. I don't really have one because they're all interesting in their own way, and, and I'm always looking forward to the next one. First up today, confidence. Confidence is attractive. People are drawn to others who appear to be confident and in control. So if you want to appear more confident... Even if you aren't feeling it, here's some advice from askmen.com. Let clothes leave no doubt. If you're worried that you're wearing the wrong shirt or the wrong shoes, it's going to sap your confidence. So don't leave home without feeling completely confident in your appearance. Keep your hands low. Imagine a line around your torso and keep your hands below that line. When your hands are up any higher, it gives the appearance that you're fidgeting and uncomfortable. Not a confident look. Looking people in the eye when you speak to them exudes confidence. If you find it difficult to do, find a spot on the person's face near their eye and look at that. And don't over-explain yourself. Once you make a statement, stop talking. People who are insecure and lack confidence feel the need to keep explaining their position over and over again. So don't do that. And that is something you should know. What does it mean to be kind to others? Are we hardwired to help others and do kind things? Or are we hardwired just to take care of ourselves and our own? Is there a benefit to being kind to you as the giver? And are you really kind or are you just nice? These are interesting and important questions that have been studied by Houston Craft. Houston is a speaker, an author, and kindness advocate. 
He has a book out called Deep Kindness, A Revolutionary Guide for the Way We Think, Talk, and Act in Kindness. Hi, Houston. Thanks so much, Michael. Excited to chat. So I think that all of us have seen, witnessed, or been a part of amazing acts of kindness. And we've also seen amazing acts of cruelty and lack of kindness. So would you say that humans are generally kind? I think generally human beings want to be kind. (laughs) But I would suggest that the actual road to becoming deeply kind, to having it be a piece of who we are, uh, is something that requires intentional, ongoing work. I think we have a disposition that wants to serve others, but we have circumstances that prevent us from that. You know, there's research around empathy. My friend Dr. Michelle Borba, as an example, has been thinking about and researching empathy for three decades. And she says the biggest things that cause a decrease in empathy, in my capacity to understand who you are or what you're going through, the three biggest barriers are anxiety, fear, and narcissism. And you think about those three words and how they've increased in our world, not necessarily as a direct fault of our own, but I think just the pressure of our world, of what social media has created. I think there's uh, obviously in the current circumstances of the world, there's increased anxiety. And you start to realize that that makes sense, right? The more anxious I am, the more worried I am about what's going on in my world, the harder time I have thinking about what's going on in yours. And so while we might want to be kind, I think it requires quite a bit more discipline and quite a bit more practice uh, than maybe we give it credit for, right? That fluffy exterior version that we think about when it comes to kindness. I think when we think about something as light or free or as fluffy, we don't allocate the necessary resources to improve at it. So yeah, there's a gap. Well, it's interesting how people today say that the world that we live in right now is not particularly kind, that there's a lot of division and a lot of rather unkind things being said. And yet when you when you ask individuals, it's hard to imagine anybody saying, no, I'm not kind. I'm just a real jerk. But everybody, I think, likes to think they're kind, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, I would say probably 10 out of 10 people would say they're kind, but I think they're actually saying they're nice. Right? I think we're all, I heard this from a kid at, at school I spoke at in Texas. He's like, you know, you talked about kindness today. And I feel like a lot of my classmates weren't listening because they think they're already there. They would say we have a kind school, but he goes, I think we have a nice school. You know, people are nice to the people because it's a reaction. I'll be nice to you if I like you. I'll be nice to you if I agree with you. But he goes, kindness is different. The way you talked about kindness today, he goes, it's, it's not reactive, it's proactive. It requires me to make time. It requires me to, uh, to look for need. It requires me to help people even if I don't see that they're actively hurting. And he goes, I think kindness requires a lot of work. And I think I have a lot of work to do. And I love that humble perspective that I wish more of us took, which is to say, if I look at kindness as this essential part of a meaningful life, of a successful life, and recognize every day that I have work to do, then we get to stop feeling like we've already arrived at this thing. Just because we believe in something doesn't mean we're good at it. I believe I can make that free throw, but I'm not a good basketball player because I haven't put in the time over time to be competent at it. Same thing's true with kindness. I think we have a world where we say it's a good thing, but we're collectively not very good at it. And so there's work. There's work to close the gap. That is brilliant. That is a brilliant observation, I think, that people think they're kind, but really, mostly they're nice. And nothing wrong with being nice, but, but it's a step or two back from kindness. But it's certainly, niceness, I believe, doesn't move the cultural needle forward, right? It maintains the status quo. Showing up when it's comfortable, when it's convenient, but as my mentor Tyler says, a commitment to growth is a commitment to pain, which means seeking opportunities where it is uncomfortable, where it does challenge us, where we have to do something that's inconvenient. That's how we make a more compassionate world. That's br- that's great. I love, and who said that? A, a kid? A yeah, st- <laughs> high school senior, uh, small town outside of San Antonio, Texas. Well, I've always sensed that there is a lot of you know, pent-up kindness, for lack of a better term. And that is that people want to do something, but they don't know what to do. Like, you know, I, I give a couple of bucks to the guy 
begging for money at the intersection. Is that being kind? Is that really helping the guy? Or, you know, the world is full of problems. What, what, is, what can I do? I, I feel so insignificant. I can't really make a difference. And so I think people don't do anything. Yeah, I think abstractness reduces action. Right? The bigger and more amorphous a concept it is, the harder time I'm going to have putting it into practical, certainly practical, consistent action over time. Uh, the example, the metaphor I always use is the, the menu at the Cheesecake Factory. I don't know if you visited recently, but the menu is like 200 pages long. And when we get overwhelmed by choice, right, it's the paradox of choice. When there's too many choices, our brains don't work as well. So the first time I ever went to the Cheesecake Factory, I ordered the Chipotle chicken pasta. And it was delicious. And now, I don't know, eight times out of ten when I go back to the Cheesecake Factory, my most natural inclination is to order that thing again. I think that concept translates to kindness. Those things like paying for the coffee in the per, for the person in that line behind you or, or to your point, you know, giving the person a dollar who's experiencing homelessness or helping the old lady across the street. Those are the things that we've seen for so long. They've become the chipotle chicken pastas of kindness. So how do we think about it differently? To your point, how do we actually know how to mobilize this big abstract idea? Uh, I use something in my brain called intersectional thinking, which is just like sort of a Venn diagram to help your brain wrap your, your head around really big ideas. You can use this in lots of different disciplines, but for kindness as an example, let's say instead of saying, how do I practice kindness today, which is a massive abstract question, what if instead I said, let's add one circle, one way to narrow the focus. How do I practice kindness towards a certain person in my life? Maybe that's my mom, maybe it's a roommate, maybe it's a neighbor. Right? And that question immediately is different. How do I practice kindness towards my mom is a different premise, is a different ask than how do I practice kindness towards my roommate. To make it true intersectional thinking, that Venn diagram, what if we were to add one more layer? How do I practice kindness towards my mom with a certain time frame? That could be five minutes today. Right? One of the premises I believe deeply in, in kindness is that specificity it's going to drive meaning and it's going to drive action, right? The more specific I am, the more likely I'm going to do that thing. And the more specific the action, the more meaningful it is to the person receiving it. One of the interesting things to me about kindness is how easy it is to put it at the, how it moves down the bottom of the, I could be kind today, but I'm just too busy. You know, I just, mm. it's like, that's the one thing that, that I just can't go out of my way today because I have all these other more important things to do. So how do we reframe that? Well, one of my favorite articles comes from the Wall Street Journal. Its title is, Are You As Busy As You Think? And it begs us to, to reframe the way we think about time. It says, what if we're never again allowed to say, I don't have time? What if I had to say, this is not my priority? Meaning, the, way, the places we allocate our time are really the things that we say we value. Whether we say them out loud or not, what we actually value are the things that we give our most precious resources to. Probably the most precious of all, of course, time. So a strategy I offer that, um, that I, I came up with as a result of watching a nurse interact with my mom as she was navigating stage four colon cancer. I realized that all these different nurses came in and out of my mom's room, but I only remember one of them. And it occurred to me that all of them had a to-do list that was quite similar. And yet this one, her name is Wonderful. <laughs> this one, for some reason, was way more memorable. And I realized it was because of the things not on her to-do list, but the things on her who she wants to be list. So while she's getting things done, she still has a job to do, she made it a priority to be present, to be singing, to be joyful, to share stories, to be kind. And so a practice I've started integrating into my life and into our organization is as you're writing down your daily to-do list, what if you were to visually cue yourself to remind yourself of how important those to-be list items are by writing a to-be list above the to-do list? So let's say I have 10 things on the to-do list today, but my to-be list just has one or two. And maybe on my to-be list today is kind and grateful. And now my job is to take these abstract ideas and, again, make them really specific. To be kind today looks like blank. Well, maybe it looks like sending a video to my grandma uh, who recently had to put down her cat. 
uh, and I want to check in with her. So I'm going to make five minutes today to film that video and send it off to her. A shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, for as long as I can remember, I have had to deal with seasonal allergies. Stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. I wake up because I can't breathe right. And during the day, well, you know, if I'm working and I'm all stuffed up, then my voice sounds weird and this is how I make my living. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. I use it and if you struggle with allergies, you should too. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been using Claritin D for years because, well, just it takes care of the problem. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. To be grateful. I know how good that is for my mental health, my mental well-being. And when I take a walk today, I'm not going to take my device. Instead, I'm going to see if I can find five things that I'm grateful for within a 10-minute walk of my home. So now I still have that deep human desire, right? I still have the ability to check those things off, which we love checking things off. But I'm making a priority of these abstract ideas that when I get busy, as you say, they fall naturally to the bottom of our list, unless we make time for that which we believe is most important. We're talking about kindness and what it really means to be kind. My guest is Houston Kraft, and he is author of the book, Deep Kindness, a revolutionary guide for the way we think, talk, and act in kindness. So, Houston, it's my experience, and I think the experience of many people, that as wonderful as it is to be kind because it does something for the other person, there's something about being kind that gives to the giver. That That's where that phrase, you know, what you give, you get back. That there is a reward that comes back to you. And it may not be, you know, a quid pro quo kind of reward, but I guess what I'm saying is it feels good to be kind and that that in it of itself is a selfish reason to be kind. Yeah, the, the biggest challenge I think of or an ongoing kindness practice would be to say, uh, this came up in a conversation I recently had with a woman named Cleo. She, she said one of her self-check questions is, who am I doing this for? Now, there's tons of research, as you allude to, that giving support, giving kindness is actually better for you physically, mentally, emotionally than receiving support. It is a healthy practice, undoubtedly. The challenge becomes when you start to expect something in return for it. Right? Does it have some sort of strings attached in giving it and you don't get the response you want? What happens? Right? What is your emotional response there? For a lot of us, we naturally take that personally because there's nothing worse than trying to do something good and getting something bad or, or, or perceived negative in return. And I really like the, the, that question of who am I doing this for because it, it checks us. Simple story that relates to uh, that is the story of the Sandy Hook shooting, right? this tragedy that happened in a community. 
And so often in our world, we wait till bad things to happen, uh, till we make sure we go and do something good. But people from all over the world saw this tragedy happen and they said, here's an opportunity for me to be kind. And so they sent teddy bears, stuffed animals. People from all over the country and the world sent thousands of stuffed animals to Newtown, Connecticut. So many stuffed animals, in fact, that Newtown had to rent a warehouse just to put all these things in one place. (laughs) And one of the guys that ran the candlelit vigil said that there were more teddy bears there than there were people. And in a really profound statement, he said, don't get me wrong, a stuffed animal's great, but a teddy bear doesn't pay for counseling and a teddy bear doesn't pay for a funeral. Which to me reminds me of, tells me that kindness without empathy usually serves me, the giver, more than the person receiving. Because people sent these teddy bears, right, well-intentioned. But did they actually tune into what the community needed in that moment? Or were they just sending something so that they could feel good? Because now we're burdening a community already in need because we weren't listening first. So yes, while giving will make us feel good, I think that self-check question can be so powerful. Who am I doing this for? And am I serving a legitimate need or am I serving a perceived need based on making myself feel good? Let me tell you a story. I still get a little choked up when I tell it, but uh, there was a guy, 19-year-old kid, who was going to die. He was a patient of my wife's at a hospital. And long story short, it, it became clear she had told me from talking to him that he was a fan of Miley Cyrus and he would like to meet her, that that would be something he thought was really cool. Not, not in some kind of dying wish thing, because he, he was quite a ways away from the end, but he just thought it would be really cool to meet her. And I thought, well, you know, I'm in the radio business. I was at the time, and I knew people in the record business, and I thought, well, how, you know, how hard can this be? <laughs> I, can, I can pull this off. Well, I took it upon myself to try to make this happen. It turned out to be... A monumental task. Getting Miley Cyrus to meet him, I I had to talk to I don't know how many people. And everybody said no. And everybody said, oh, she's out of the country. And we can't possibly pull this off. And no, that won't work. And how about we just send him an autographed picture? And and I refused to take no for an answer. And it, it took a long time. It took months and months. And finally, I ran into somebody who knew somebody. And I lobbied and I and it, it became a passion for me. And again, I'm, I'm doing this to be nice to this guy who was really dealt a very bad hand in life. And I thought, you know, let's make this wish come true. But it also took on a life for me. I really was going to make this happen. I had to make this happen. And and finally it got to her and she couldn't have been more willing, more agreeable and more wonderful. And long story short, she basically walked up behind him at a shopping mall, tapped him on the shoulder. He turned around. There was Miley Cyrus and she spent hours with him. And I was there, I watched the meeting and I got so much out of it. He did eventually die. And I have always felt good that I made this happen. But did did I do it for him or did I do it for me? I think the story is a beautiful one, primarily because you were meeting a, a need that you listened to. Right? You knew it's a known need. And meeting a known need, a legitimate need or a deep desire, especially of someone who's terminal like that, uh, is a profound thing to witness. Another one of my favorite words is a a Sanskrit word. It's mudita. Mudita is vicarious joy. So watching someone experience joy, true joy, gives you that joy as well, which is different, I believe, than giving someone a gift that you really haven't asked if this is what they want or need in the moment. And you know that feeling? I had this conversation with a gentleman named David. He goes, one of my least favorite feelings in the world is having someone give me a gift that they just think they're supposed to give me because of the circumstance or the holiday or whatever. 
and it's not really a gift that I want or need, and now I have to pretend to like it to appease the person who's giving it. I don't know if you've ever had family who make you feel that way. I've had conversations with some of my roommates where we're like, we've told our family, this is not what we want. Please don't do this. And they do it anyways. Right, sure. And, and I think that even well-intentioned uh, actions of kindness, if we're not listening first, can actually in some ways do more harm than good, or it benefits you way more than the person receiving it. And the story that you just shared is so profound to me because you listen first in order to love better, which is to say, here's this need, and I'm going to do everything in my power to meet it, which makes the joy that much more authentic and your experience of witnessing that joy that much more true. Right? You're sharing in his joy and not just the byproduct of your own work. You know, I've often wondered, you know, where does kindness come from? I mean, is it, If it's not human nature, if it's not in our genes to... Be, be kind. Is it just something we learn by observing? Is it something we're taught? There's this interesting study that Harvard did where they asked families to rank what they wanted for their kids. Do they want them to be high performing, happy, or kind? One, two, or three. And 80 something percent of families said they'd rather their kids be happy and kind over high performing. Sounds nice. Yeah. Then they asked the kids of those same parents, what do you think your parents want you to be? High-performing, happy, or kind? And the data was the exact opposite. Which reminds me that the, the questions that we ask at the dinner table, the measurements of success in schools and in college and in our careers, don't always match up to the things that we say we value. Uh, and until we make them important with the way we speak in conversation, with the metrics of success, then I think moments like you just described are going to continue to be uh, beautiful accidents instead of, uh, you know, purposeful, purposeful practices. Well, something that I've always thought about, and I'd, I'd like to get you to respond, is that, you know, being kind is the right thing to do, but it's sometimes the hard thing to do. And I think people often don't do that act of kindness for fear that it, it, it won't work. Yeah, I, I think that maybe the final piece is just that we take for granted how courageous it is. Uh, and I th we so often talk about the things that we're afraid of. So much of how we orient these tough conversations in our life relate to being you know, productive, successful people in the world. But you know, like fear of failure, we always frame that through the lens of the corporations, the people, the athletes who had to fail a lot of times in order to succeed. But I think we forget about how, how those same fears prevent us from connection. You know, my fear of failing someone I love might prevent me from reaching out to them because I'm worried I won't know what to say. And my fear of rejection might cause me that time I, I tried to offer something to that person who looked like they were in need and they rejected me or they laughed at me or they told me they needed something else. And now I feel hurt in an effort to give. And I, I think I take for granted how much that reduces my willingness to give the next time. So if there's one other thing I would offer, it's just a reminder that kindness requires, I think, a real cultivated courage. It's, it's a, a braver action than we give it credit for, and uh, the results are just as profound as any other success in our life. You know, when you hear the term kindness, it, it seems so soft. It seems so almost unnecessary. That kindness is what we do if we still have enough time after we do all the important things. But I, I think you've laid out pretty well that Kindness in and of itself is pretty important for a lot of reasons and for everybody. My guest has been Houston Kraft. He's a speaker, author, and kindness advocate. The name of his book is Deep Kindness, a revolutionary guide for the way we think, talk, and act in kindness. And there's a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you, Houston. Thanks so much, Mike. It's been a pleasure. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday 
in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Science has played an important role in your life, and you know something about it. You probably took science in high school, and you learned the scientific method, and science is all around you. You hear how things are scientifically proven, and so therefore it must be true. We often look at science as this authority, that if science says it is so, it is so. Well, perhaps science is a lot more messy than we like to think. After all, some things that were scientific before are not so scientific now. So how does science really work? Well, no one knows better about this than James Zimmering. He's a medical doctor with a Ph.D. in immunology, and he is professor of pathology at the University of Virginia. He's author of a book called What Science Is and How It Really Works. Hi, James. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So we hear a lot today, uh, this cry about believe the science, we must trust the science. It's often used, I, I think, as kind of a way to shut the conversation down, that, that science is this ultimate authority. So if science has spoken, there's n nothing more to say. It is a fundamental problem that you point out. And this is a problem probably perpetuated as much by scientists and science enthusiasts as anyone else. And it's intensely damaging because if anyone claims science can prove things to an absolute certainty, then anything that's not proven to an absolute certainty shouldn't be believed. And if absolute certainty is your standard of believing things, you're going to wander around with no beliefs at all. So it's, it's a fundamental misunderstanding about science that it can prove things to an absolute certainty, and it's really very damaging. That said, it's rational to believe something that's probably true, even if it's not absolutely true. And I think that's a very important distinction. So what is science? It, I, obviously, you know, you wrote a whole book to explain it, but, but in a nutshell, in a sentence or two or three, what, what is science? Yeah, well, first of all, let me say that um, no philosopher or scientist or any other person to my knowledge has come up with an answer to that question that you'll get uniform consensus on. But I think it's fair to say a few things that can that can define science. First of all, science is about understanding and predicting the natural world, uh, natural phenomena, you know, what happens in nature. And it is a combination of experience and theory and reasoning, just like any other uh, human belief construct. But science is linked to experience and, and certain types of experience much more tightly than other belief constructs are. You come uh, at trying to understand the world through, through certain religions or philosophies or person con personal constructs. If your experience violates what you believe, it's pretty easy to kind of discount your experience. Scientists do that too, but much it's much more difficult to do that in the sciences. So I would say it's it's a belief construct that's linked to data, to experience, to observation of the natural world uh, in very particular ways and by particular rules uh, that leads to the ability to predict and control nature better than uh, any other system that's out there. Sometimes, though, science changes its mind. Well, that's an interesting comment. Science changes its mind all the time about the explanations behind experience. But science seldom changed its mind about experience itself. What do I mean by that? Uh, airplanes fly. And the theory behind, the aerodynamics theory behind why airplanes fly and the physical explanations about why airplanes fly may change over time. But the fact that airplanes fly does not. Uh, 
And so this is a really important distinction. People are, are very um, uh, quick to say, but science has been wrong so many times in the past. And that is true. Scientific explanations and theories have turned out to be wrong over time as we refine better and better theories. But the vaccines don't stop working. The antibiotics don't stop working. The planes don't stop flying. The cell phones don't stop working. So if you think of science as a body of phenomenological knowledge, a body of how nature works, that really doesn't change much over time. Um, our theories change, but that's, that's part of trying to refine theory to better explain what we observe. Well, that's really interesting, because it sounds like what you're saying is th things sometimes work, and we're not always sure why, or we could change our minds as to why, but the point is it still works. That's right. So why do we care why it works? And the reason we care why it works is that the better we understand why it works, uh, the more ability we have to keep it working and to come up with new things that work, right? So theory is essential in predicting things we have not yet encountered. Uh, and 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 both both inside a phenomenon and and external. However, uh, the bot the corpus of understanding of scientific biology, chemistry, chemistry, physics, the understanding may change, but not not the body of, of our technologies and what we know and what we can do. And and I think that that that's really it's really a um, a tough debate about whether scientific theories are true on you know whether things that we 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 guess at that we don't experience that causes what we do experience are really there that's a, a philosophically very deep pond but to say that science gets things wrong about what actually happens i think that's a bit misguided and the confusion of those two areas leads to a lot of distrust about science uh that i think is unfounded Really? Is there a lot of distrust in science? I mean, because what would be better? I mean, what, what would you... <laughs> well, so that's one point of view. I think there's tremendous distrust in science from several different points of view. First of all, um, if you listen about debates about climate change or global warming, depending upon what term you want to use, uh, if you look at debates around vaccines and whether they work or whether they're safe or whether they're dangerous, a lot of our, our, our deb uh, debates around uh, the coronavirus and COVID-19, a lot of um, people who don't like the conclusions that scientists would come to will mistrust science from two separate uh, vantage points, at least, at least two separate vantage points. The first is science has been wrong in the past, so why should we trust it in the future? But then the second thing is that science, I think, is mistrusted uh, by people as an establishment. That there is a there is a conspiratorial mindset that that scientists are lying or have sold out or have some uh, hidden all you know ulterior motives or a different agenda. And so, depending upon what group of people you talk to, trust in science or lack thereof varies widely. You know, I've heard the same things. That, you know, that science, as if it's like you know a bunch of guys in an office sitting around doing sciencey things that you know that they they have a cure for cancer but they're hiding it you know because the you know and i think well but don't these guys also have relatives and you know who have can why would why would anyone do that i mean what what would what would be the benefit i mean but you know there's all these conspiracy theories about you know there, if we cured cancer the, all the businesses that would go out of business or uh, whatever it is it's just like what yeah, well, look, I mean, obviously humans are human, and they humans can behave um, at times in not the most admirable of ways, and, and corporate interests and money and pressures are all over the place, but trust me, I'm a scientist, I'm a doctor. When you see ads that say, you know, here's the cure that doctors don't want you to know about, trust me, if there was a cure, doctors would want you to know about it because they'd want you to be well and not, you know, not coming into the hospital being sick. Um, but there is a conspiratorial mindset. There is distrust. And, and I would submit to you that some people purposely sow that mistrust, purposely sow that uh, that mistrust because it benefits them to do so. So, but science science is 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 a, a area of understanding on its own. It's it stands on its own, and uh, it can be addressed on its own. Well, I, I think an interesting example and observation is you know people want a coronavirus vaccine and they want it now, and it would be great if you guys in science, the, <laughs> you science guys, would hurry it up, but. 
if you did hurry it up, it wouldn't be really scientific because you have to go through the process of making sure it's safe and effective. Nature is what nature is, regardless of what we would like it to be. And our ability to understand it is different than our ability to fundamentally change it. But yes, these things take time to test and do properly. Uh, Vaccines are complicated things. If you look at the history of vaccine development, what we're doing right now uh, with the coronavirus is a breakneck pace. Actually, the amount of international collaboration on this is nothing short of astounding. Uh, But the idea that, um, you know, there's a vaccine, but the FDA is not releasing it for some political purpose, frankly, is absurd. I can understand why it might make sense to certain points of view, uh, but that's just not a that's just not a justifiable uh, position. Right. Well, I also think some of the distrust, I mean, (laughs) the phrase government scientist. Oh, my God. I mean, (laughs) I mean, that just sounds just like such trouble. And science is expensive. Somebody has to fund it. And, th- and there's always the argument of follow the money. Who's funding this research? Who's doing this science? Because you will uncover interesting things that, that may make the science a little murky. Well, look, I mean, there have been examples of scientific malpractice uh, by government-funded scientists, by company-funded scientists, and by scientists with particular agendas and ideologies. There's no, there's no way to escape this. You know, again, again, we're humans. Uh, if I had to point to the most egregious examples, it would be the tobacco industry, who created their own uh, scientific groups, who, who hired, you know, bona fide professional scientists with a lot of money, and forced a research agenda that basically obscured the dangers of smoking, allowing them to continue to sell uh, their product uh, for, for decades. And so, I mean, yes, there are examples of um, groups of, of, of who are carrying out science-looking things, okay, that have the trappings of science that have a sinister motive behind them. However, in, in its strictest analysis, those are not really scientific activities, and it's hard to tell the difference. And so the, the a debate that you'll hear a lot about is science versus pseudoscience. And it is a, an important part of our society, because if there are groups out there presenting themselves as though they are scientists and they are acting with ulterior motives and using perverted methodologies, how do you identify who those people are and how do you take their knowledge claims with the right grain of salt? And again, this is, it can be confusing to people and it's, it's a very important topic. It does seem, and one of the arguments you hear is that Science starts in the fringe, you know, new ideas that aren't yet proven, and people raise their eyebrows saying, well, wait a minute, you can't, uh, you can't be selling that because that's, that's fringy stuff. But the argument is often made that that's where new scientific discoveries come from is the fringe, because it, it has to come from somewhere. That's right. So, so we, we need fringy things for discovery. If someone makes a fringe claim evaluated by a legitimate scientific process. And if it holds up, great. And if it doesn't, then you discard it. But keeping it on the fringe, refusing to test it, and just keeping it there forever uh, is what pseudoscience does, right? Pseudoscience doesn't make progress. Pseudoscience has claims that are untestable. Um, a classic example would be, well, I'm, I'm working with you to manipulate some energy field around your body that'll make you feel better. And then a group of scientists will come along and say, hey, that's, that's great if that works. Let's do a controlled trial. Let's have one group of people where you manipulate their energy field and another group of people where you pretend to manipulate their energy field so they can't tell the difference, but you really don't. And then we'll see uh, if there's any difference. And then they do the trial and then there's no difference. And then the person says, well... The skepticism of your trial, the negative energy of you making me do this prevented the thing from working. And, you know, at that point you say, okay, well, let's, you know, your claims are clearly untestable and therefore we we can't validate them. And we're going to have to say, no, we don't think, we don't think that's happening. So as opposed to a drug where they say, yeah, we're going to give it a placebo to one group and the drug to the other group and compare the results. Those are, those are categorically different things. And so a lot of the fringe beliefs, if they take the form that by their very um, uh, premises, they cannot be tested then that's that's a different thing. 
It's like the psychic and you say, well, so what are the winning lottery numbers for this week? And they, well, it doesn't work that way. Well, it should work that way. Yeah, clairvoyance is a funny thing. I mean, you go to a, go to a psychic, you go to a mentalist, and you'll have to reflect upon the fact that the entire experience you're having with them is them asking you questions, um, <laughs> which you which you then confirm or, or deny, and then they focus on the things they confirm, and then they ask you more questions, and you have to say, wait a minute, you're a psychic. At some point, aren't you going to tell me something? At some point, aren't you going to make a statement? And the answer is no, because without that continuous feedback from you going, yes, no, yes, no, and then they just focusing on the hits and ignoring all the misses, it doesn't work. Um, science does have to make the following restriction on itself, though. If something is not testable by science, that that doesn't make it false. Right. If something is not, I, I can't say this enough. If something is not testable by science, that doesn't make it false. It just makes it not testable, and therefore you can never lend it any scientific uh, validity. And and that's also an important distinction. I mean, people should should believe what they want, but they should not believe it as though it's been scientifically vetted when it can't be. Since you study this and you talk to people, what is your sense? If you had to take the temperature of the population, do people get this? Do people understand what it means when something is scientifically proven or not? What, what do you think people generally perceive this all to be? I think that most people understand that science can do things, can accomplish things that other areas of thought have not have not been able to do. And at the same time, they're confused by the claims they hear, they hear contrary claims, and they're suspicious of what they're being told, and they're cautious about uh, about the the enterprise behind the science. And again, I, I think I think they should be. Um, none of us should take things, you know, without uh, evidence. Uh, but the problem is, is that I think that what constitutes legitimate evidence or or equality evidence has really been obscured lately. And I, th I think a lot of people uh, are confused by it. That having been said, there are clearly people out there who are big science enthusiasts and there are clearly people out there who are who are science deniers, you know, and um, and I don't know. I don't know how to reconcile that. We are in a very. A complicated time now. We're in what's been called a post-fact era, uh, where our society is struggling even to have a common narrative about what the observable parts of our world are, and and that that causes fundamental problems. What's a what's a science denier? How do you deny science? Well, so so denialism or, or denier is, is kind of a, a dirty word, I suppose. But you know, if someone is a um, uh, uh, climate change denier, right? So, so there are people out there who would say, I don't think the Earth's getting warmer because I'm looking at satellite data and they don't support that conclusion. All right, that's not a science denier. That that's actually a scientist if if they're if they're analyzing the data uh, fairly. But if someone says, well, you know, I, despite all of these data, the Earth just it's just not getting warmer. Or if you've heard of the flat flat Earth movement, right? They they basically say, look, um, the Earth's flat because it's it's flat, and all these other things are just kind of made up by a big conspiracy. The government took pictures of people landing on the moon. There's never been a satellite. They manufactured all this data. I don't believe science as a thing. It's, it's just one big conspiracy for the powers that should not be, that are trying to manipulate us to their evil and sinister ends. That would be a science denier, someone who denies that the process of science is a legitimate uh, effort to understand nature. And so what is it you want people to take away from this discussion? The reason to have the discussion is simultaneously to uh, prop science up as a legitimate uh, way to understand nature, perhaps the only uh, way that, that really is useful in understanding nature, and at the same time to deflate it uh, from the pedestal that a lot of people have put it on that it cannot uh, that it cannot live up to. Uh, there are people out there who say, well, science is fact. And then and then quite rightly, other people say, well, if science is fact, then why have scientists been wrong in the past? Well, that's a very good question. But just because scientists have been wrong in the past doesn't mean that science is just another opinion. 
it's an opinion that's based upon um, a very special way of understanding the world, and it should be given the special uh, status that it has uh, earned via evidence regarding itself, but it is not perfect. It's the best tool we have, uh, but it's not a perfect tool. And so I think I think that a, a, the goal here is a more balanced view of science such that we use this tool we have, which is one of the greatest tool, you know, humans are tool makers. Science is one of the greatest tools we've ever made, but that we use this tool effectively for what it was intended for and that we don't wield it irresponsibly on either side uh, of the issue. Well, I think that explains it pretty well, and I think you did a good job in helping people understand what, what science is all about. My guest has been James Zimring. He is an MD and PhD in immunology and a professor of pathology at the University of Virginia. His book is called What Science Is and How It Really Works, and there's a link to his book in the show notes. Thank you, James. Thank you. It's really been fun to talk to you. Yeah. I remember hearing what I'm about to tell you several years ago when I interviewed Dr. Michael Roizen, who's Dr. Oz's writing partner. They'd written several books together, and this has always stuck with me. So I looked it up again to get the the facts right, but here it is. When you're driving, making a left-handed turn is one of the most dangerous maneuvers you can make. Why? Well, because you're often turning in front of oncoming traffic. Left-hand turns are so dangerous that statistically you lengthen your life if you reduce the number of left-hand turns you make. It is so much safer to make a series of right-hand turns to get to where you're going than it is to turn left, particularly if there's a lot of traffic. In fact, UPS maps out truck delivery routes to avoid left-handed turns whenever possible, just for that reason. And that is something you should know. I mentioned before that in the last several weeks, we've seen a nice increase in the size of the audience, and we'd like to keep that momentum going, and you can help by sharing this podcast with someone you know. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.